Welcome to the Jesus Name News Podcast. On this episode, we'll be exploring the fascinating story of Abraham, Lot, and Melchizedek. We'll dive into the biblical narrative and uncover the significance of these figures and their actions. We'll get into Melchizedek and we'll talk about the historic and religious ideas of who this man was and why he was encountered by Abraham. All that and more this week with us. So stick with us through this break. Listen, you know, we have a new podcast out called That Pentecostal Podcast. Episodes are already available. So Larry, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what's happening over at TPP? Yeah, we saw a need for a devotional podcast in the Pentecostal realm. We saw a need just for a short, uplifting moment that we can give to people. And so we decided that we're going to do it. We're going to make one. We're going to put it out there. It's going to include us. It's going to include our new members of the team. It's going to have Derek. It's going to have me. It's going to have Adrian. It's going to have some other people. We're going to have guests. And we're going to bring to you life-applicable, faith-building, Holy Ghost fire devotionals every single Monday. That Pentecostal podcast is available everywhere you get your podcast. So go set it to download, set it to notify you, whatever you need to do. But don't miss That Pentecostal podcast every Monday. Welcome back to the Geostomies podcast. So this week we have the story of Abraham and Lot found in Genesis, specifically in chapters really 11 to 19, but we're really going to focus on about 13. Um, It portrays the relationship between Abraham, which he was obviously then called Abram, and his nephew Lot, as well as the circumstances that lead up to what eventually becomes the separation. Abraham is a man of great faith. He's chosen by God to be the father of this great nation through whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. In obedience to God's call, Abraham leaves his homeland. He journeys to the land of Canaan. And along with him, he brings his nephew, Lot. So this is where we pick up in this episode uh, with Genesis 13 after Abraham's deception of Pharaoh. So uh, Larry, if you'll read. Genesis 13, 1 through 5. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So as they settle in the land, both Abraham and Lot experience this great prosperity. They acquire massive herds and acquire really a lot of possessions in general. Now, the fact of Lot's prosperity, I want to point out, is not on himself. Lot hitched his wagon to Abraham. Lot's father is presumably Haran, who is dead. So with his grandfather also dead, Abraham is really the only quote-unquote father that is left in his life. So what we see is Abraham mentoring and fathering others who are not quote-unquote his throughout this whole time. Lot is benefiting from this relationship with Abraham in the way of wisdom, wealth, 
just simply by association. Lot was not given a promise. Lot's offspring are not the ones through whom this great people are going to come. Lot is the first, in my opinion, that experienced being blessed through the covenant that was made between God and Abraham. And again, we cannot underscore the importance of surrounding yourself with those who are God's. Whether you grow spiritually, socially, emotionally, or financially, it really doesn't matter. Association with the true people of God is 100% the best way to go. During Abraham and Lot Sarah, these people relied heavily on agriculture. They relied heavily on animal husbandry for their sustenance, for their livelihood. And the possession of land and livestock is a massive significance. It has, it's also a measure of wealth, status, prosperity, and for the nomadic, or at least we, I would say probably semi-nomadic at this point for Abraham. For these semi-nomadic pastoralists like Abraham and Lot, they rely heavily on animal husbandry. And the size and the health of their herds directly impact their well-being and their social standing. So the av availability of grazing land and water resources was essential for their plots to sustain and to grow. So... We read in Genesis 13 and 6, Larry. Yeah, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So we found that this land is simply not capable of supporting both of these herds. Point blank. And you have to remember, this isn't, when we think of these rolling hills of Canaan, we have this image of David saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not wall, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That is simply not the topography of Canaan, even during this time. Simply not. Like, it, there were in some places these rolling grass hills and all that, but in this area, it's just not what's going on. What's going on here is that the herds, the the sheep or the the cattle, whatever they were using, would have to actually like dig around on rocks to find vegetation. What you end up seeing is Abraham's livestock come through, and the herdsmen left them graze one area. Well, Lot's livestock may come through the next week, but guess what? A week isn't long enough for vegetation to regrow necessarily after it's been pulled up by livestock the week before. So there's just not enough resources. Yeah. So the herdsmen begin this quarrel due to the limited resources and this strife becomes so significant that it reaches Abraham and Lot's attention. So Genesis 13 and 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen is it not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the Jor all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
So recognizing the need to resolve this tension between the herdsmen and preserve peace, Abraham takes the initiative and proposes this separation, and he tells Lot, look, don't let there be any strife between me and you because our herdsmen are our, in our possession, right? Abraham is displaying a level of wisdom and humility and gives Lot a pretty great deal of freedom in choosing which part of the land that he wants. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And I feel like Abraham is definitely displaying that principle here. And with that, Lot looks toward this fertile Jordan Valley and opts to settle near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, these cities are even here, apparently, noted for their wickedness and their uh, moral corruption. On the other hand, Abraham remains in the land of Canaan, pretty much in the area of Hebron. So sure, Abram could have pulled seniority, which is what a lot of people do nowadays. They pull seniority. But <laughs> as people of God, we are to prefer others before ourselves. We are to defer when possible or feasible. Abraham looked at this earth, and according to the writer of Hebrews, he understood that he was looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. God has sustained and provided growth in spite of everything, in spite of lies, in spite of sojourning, in spite of being in a strange land. God provided. He knew then that God would provide even in what looks like a less preferred land, even in what seems to limit and stifle growth. God knew, or he knew that God would continue to grow, continue to prosper, and continue to help him. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too, uh, all on those same lines, and, and this might be something that we have to reconnect to um in the near future is that if abraham if abraham really had faith that god was going to provide for him it might not have mattered to him where he settled because he knew that god was going to take care of him no matter what he could have settled in the driest desert in the world and his herds and his family would be cared for but he knew that that promise didn't apply to his nephew who he yeah. did care for and so he let yeah. Lot choose to take care of Lot because, yes, Lot moved towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But the weird thing is, is that he moved towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But later on, we find out he didn't just move towards Sodom. He moved into Sodom. There's yeah. a whole there's a huge difference between him moving adjacent to Abram in the direction of Sodom and moving away from Abram actually into Sodom. Well, it's, it's the difference between, like, setting up your your house beside, you know, a uh, house that is notorious for perversion. I'll just leave it that way. Yeah. Eventually, you're probably going to find yourself in that house. Yeah. If you're not watching it. Yeah, and it's just, it, it's just interesting to me. Because, I mean, he says, I'll take the whole Jordan Valley. It's like, bro... Okay, that's a whole valley. There's more than enough room for five whole cities. You didn't have to move in any of them. A little presumptuous. <laughs> well, that right. is a little presumptuous too, but like that's a lot of space. Like there's more yeah. than five cities in that valley. Like you could have taken an empty spot. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I totally agree. <laughs> but so then we read that 
there's this man by the name of Catalemer and the kings of the east. That's what we get. That's how they're named. So Catalemer is the king of Elam. He leads this coalition of kings from the east in a military campaign. And pretty much their motivation is to exert dominance and expand their territory and to collect tribute from the regions that they conquered. So essentially, expanding power and wealth. That's what it comes down to. I mean, that sounds like the the whole plan of every government that's ever existed. Yeah, no no surprises there. I mean, like, yeah, this, this is not shocking. <laughs> and then we see that there are five kings in the cities of this plain, and the cities are Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zawar. And they're located in the Jordan Valley. They form an alliance against Catalemir's coalition. Well, Lot had settled near Sodom, right? And he becomes caught in the middle of this conflict between these eastern kings and the kings of the plain. And he gets taken captive along with the people of Sodom, including his entire household and his possessions, women and children. So Catalemir and these kings of the east... Again, like they're just wanting to exert dominance, they're wanting to exert power, and they just want to subject rule to the rebe- the rebels. Yeah. Well, the Plains cities, the, their motivation is pretty much to resist the subjugation, protect their cities, and preserve independence. But we forget that Lot is considered a quote-unquote righteous man, and he chose the wrong place to pitch his tent. Let's just leave it because, and the, where I'm getting that is because Abraham has this kind of negotiation with God. If he can find five righteous, will you destroy the city? And God goes and saves Abraham. I don't, I don't necessarily think that it was on Lot's righteousness. I think it was on account of Abraham himself. But either way, we can kind of conclude that Lot has some level of righteousness going on. But he still decides to, to pitch his tent toward Sodom. So Lot followed Abraham. He likely worshipped Yahweh with Abraham. Given that Lot traveled with Abraham everywhere he went, he was probably kind of what, what we would call a disciple. Yet he chose to go to that wicked place, Sodom. He chose those fields for their lushness. He chose it essentially upon his lust. He wanted the best fields at the deferment of Abraham. So Lot went out of the way of God and his uncle. So it should be no wonder to him that he also should share in the desolation of Sodom, in my opinion. Uh, that's that's not some fancy scholar's opinion. This is my opinion. It's no surprise. So remember, God didn't make a promise to Lot. God made a promise to Abraham that any that blesses him, God will bless, and any that curses him, God will curse. So when Lot took that option to go, he left the protection of that promise because he wasn't going to get rid of the things that defined his wealth and comfort. He had, because let's just be honest, he had that option as well. He could have said, you know what? I'm going to get rid of some of my stuff because I want to stay here. He could have denied his wealth and stayed with his uncle. It seems throughout the Bible that there are very few men who are actually capable of bearing the weight and burden of wealth, in my opinion. Wait, 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 wait. Are, are you saying that Lot could have grafted himself into the promise? That's a good way to put it. Because I'm hearing Lot could have grafted himself into the promise, which um, 
sounds that sounds familiar. Sounds like a thing. Sounds like a yeah. Sounds like a thing. Sounds like a thing that's gonna come come up in this as we keep reading this book that the story comes out of. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And <laughs> the reason I say that it seems that there are a few men capable of bearing this is because this, any surplus and wealth that we have here on Earth was not given to be treasured and withheld. And this is something that I, I was reading a book. Um, um, a couple of months ago at this point and it really opened my eyes and this is something that when I got out on my own about five or six years ago that I realized was more important than I ever thought we are blessed we we work to have right most people work to have they <laughs> are blessed to have but as a people of God we are blessed or we work to have so that we may then give. And for someone who is wrapped up in status and, you know, comfort and wealth, that's hard. Yeah. So those possessions that his servants quarreled over with Abraham's servants are now in the hands of a destroyer and a rebel. So Abraham receives news. There's one of the servants escapes, goes to Abraham. He says, hey, like, Lot got captured. This is what happened. And immediately Abraham takes action. He musters up this force of 318 trained men among his own servants and allies. These men were skilled in warfare. And what I see is that this indicates that Abraham maintained a very well-organized household. So with that very small army, Abraham embarks on a daring pursuit of the captors and he chases them all the way to Dan. And if I've been reading about the story of Jeroboam, Dan is a significant way off from where Abraham was. Significant. It's it's a pretty large distance. So he waits around, he follows them, and he waits tonight. And Abraham launches this attack against this enemy coalition and he divides them into smaller groups. So instead of attacking full force on one area, trying to penetrate, he decides, you know, we're going to divide up and try to confuse them from where we're coming from and catch them by surprise, resulting in confusion and disarray among the ranks. It's the same tactic that, a very similar tactic that would be employed in the American Revolution. So through God's intervention and Abraham's tactical prowess, I would say, they achieve a victory over these captors and they recover all the possessions that were taken, including Lot, Lot's family, and the spoils of the war. When we get back, we're going to talk about a very important encounter that changes the way we look at Genesis. Listen. You know, we have a new podcast out called That Pentecostal Podcast. Episodes are already available. So, Larry, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what's happening over at TPP? Yeah, we saw a need for a devotional podcast in the Pentecostal realm. We saw a need just for a short, uplifting moment that we can give to people. And so we decided that we're going to do it. We're going to make one. We're going to put it out there. It's going to include us. It's going to include our new members of the team. It's going to have Derek. It's going to have me. It's going to have Adrian. It's going to have some other people. We're going to have guests. And we're going to bring to you life-applicable, faith-building, 
Holy Ghost Fire Devotionals every single Monday. That Pentecostal podcast is available everywhere you get your podcast. So go set it to download, set it to notify you, whatever you need to do. But don't miss that Pentecostal podcast every Monday. Welcome back. So like I said, we're going to be looking at a encounter or an, an encounter for you English professors out there. An encounter that changes the way we look at Genesis. And that is Melchizedek and Abraham. Abraham returns from the battle and it says that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes and offers bread and wine symbolizing a covenantal and priestly act. So Larry, if you read Genesis 14, 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer? Chedorlaomer? I don't know. Catalamar. I keep one. <laughs> Catalamar? Yeah, okay. That, that's my fault, guys. I should have told Larry what that, to what that was. Here's the problem. I'm from Wisconsin, y'all. I see this, and I just want to say cheddar. Okay. Spoken like a true northerner, Yankee. Bro, it's all cheese all the time up here, man. So, this king and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So notice what Melchizedek brings out. And I've, I've read this story many times, but he brings out bread and wine. What does Jesus do at the Last Supper? He brings bread out wine. bread. He brings out wine. Yeah. This foreshadowing the First Communion ever. So, now, as far as a, I have a question about that though, real quick. Um, is it foreshadowing or is it a callback? I only I I have this question all the time when we talk about some of the, some of the prophecies about Jesus's life. We assume that anything that he references in an Old Testament teaching, is, a prophecy, but, Jesus could have just been using an example as well. Yeah. You're right. I'm not saying it wasn't a prophecy. I'm not saying it wasn't foreshadowing. I'm just saying, like, some of these things could actually just be Jesus referencing Scripture in something he's using as an example. Yeah. But as far as giving a tent, you know, this is often cited as the basis of tithing in the Old Testament. There are some scholars that suggest that um, the Levitical scribes added this to legitimize giving of a tent. (laughs) But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. And I know we're no longer under the law, but I submit that Abraham is doing this at least 480 years before the law is ever given. Yeah. Therefore, tithing is not just a law thing. It is a people of the Most High God thing. And I'm not going to get into the whole argument of, well, tithing is different. doesn't matter. The means and the production that we have today, the basic principle of tithing it is kind of the same. 
the thing I've always laughed about tithing is that you can't possibly, I, I, I fully believe in tithing. I, I'm, you know, just leave it at that. But like, the thing is, is that tithing is the only way you can consistently give that forces you to be financially responsible in every aspect of your life. Yeah. Because you have 0% chance of being a successful tither if you are not being financially responsible in every other aspect of your life. Yeah. It's almost like those people who say, it's impossible to budget. You just got to do it day to day. I'm like, well, you're going to be poor your entire life because you didn't budget. Yeah, like, that's exactly. Your, your problem. Yeah. Then we read that Abraham refuses to accept any material rewards from king, the king of Sodom. So, uh, Larry, if you'll read keep wanting to call you Abraham. I don't know why. I guess it's the beard. Genesis 14. Go ahead, Larry. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. Let's look at Melchizedek real quick. Melchizedek has a dual role as a priest and a king. Okay, that's that's what he's presented as. But he appears out of nowhere, and we're told very little about him. And when I did any level of digging on the historicity of Salem and Melchizedek, it, there's not a lot out there, because this is just simply really far back. So he's a priest of the Most High God, and he's the king of Salem. That's what we're given. His name is likely more of a title. And when you break down the word in Hebrew, you get Melech and Zedek. Melet means king, and Zedet means righteousness. Therefore, his title is the king of righteousness. Just, nah. I, I know this isn't in our notes, but his, speaking to the history teacher of the podcast, isn't that relatively normal in ancient kings? Because if I remember right, Ramses and Xerxes and I think even Nebuchadnezzar were actually very, very, very heavily repeated names, just like Caesar ended up being in Romans, where yeah. like the name was a name, but it was also a title. Yeah, what have you what have you done when your your name becomes a title? <laughs> yeah, so, and so it's like yeah, it was a title, it was a name on some level, but like that was it's way more common than we realize, and that's one of the reasons it's hard to place like the King Xerxes and stuff in like the Book of Daniel and things because there were so many of them that it's hard to place exactly where it's talking about. Right. I also think that most of us have heard at least one theory that Melchizedek was Christ himself that came to reveal the plan of redemption to Abra. I don't know. What I do know is the writer of Hebrews says this. In Hebrews 7, 1-4, it says, For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how this great man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. 
Now, this is some amazing exegetical stuff that goes on, and it relates directly back to Psalms 110 and 4 that says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, uh, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And we are told that Melchizedek has no written genealogy that should connect him to a priesthood, unlike the written genealogy of the Levites and Aaron. So when the writer of Hebrews compares Melchizedek to Christ, he is showing us that just as Melchizedek came onto the scene without anything known of him, but was a priest king, so Christ is after this same priestly order, having no earthly father and not coming from the Levitical priesthood, because I think that's something that we forget. Jesus is a high priest, but he does not come from the Levitical priesthood. Christ was from the tribe of Judah. He was born into a kingly order, not a priestly order, because David was of the tribe of Judah. He was a son of David. So he was descended from David, not Aaron. This made Christ unique, according to Hebrews. The idea that Christ should be a king and a priest is foreshadowed by Melchizedek, who would serve in the office of both. Okay, so that's really awesome. I just have a question, not not edit this out, maybe. So was that some exegetiception going on there an exegetical analysis of the exegetical analysis of hebrews on book of psalms guys i would edit this out but i felt larry made a fool of himself so i'm gonna leave it i mean to be fair i was doing that on purpose a little bit like i know you were i just was like i was just sitting here like dude i've never considered that like he is doing an exegetical analysis of that psalms passage when he's doing that he really is doing that but then we take and we do the same thing to hit whoever wrote that writing. We uh, we we exegize it, exegize yeah. it even more. It's like we're exegizing yeah. the exegesis. Yeah. Well, it's almost like uh, I think it's in First Kings fifteen or Second Chronicles somewhere in there that they actually reference the midrash. I'm like, we're getting an exegesis explanation of the midrash. So it's commentary on commentary. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, so I just think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really cool. Now, there is also a theory out there that Melchizedek is a son of Noah. You heard that right. Before I start, I am not saying that this is who it is, even in the slightest bit. This is simply something that I found interesting because apparently it's a really big thing. So Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 2, section 3, mentions that Adam is given a prophecy that the world would be destroyed once by water and once by fire. The sons of Seth recorded that the prophecy, or recorded this prophecy Adam was given in brick and stone. So God speaks to Noah to build this ark to save him and his family, and after the flood, Noah's sons settled in different parts of the earth and were given a command to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Well, Ham settles in North a- Northern Africa. Japheth settles in Russia and Northern Europe. Shem settles in Arabia, Palestine, and Syria. Shem is the lineage through which we get the Hebrews through Eber, and then Abraham, and eventually Jesus. This leads many religious Jewish scholars to believe that Melchizedek was none other than Shem. Now, this whole idea really comes from the book of Jasher, which says that Shem and Eber lived in Jerusalem, or Salem at the time, and had a special teaching academy there. Eber is important because the word Hebrew is Ebri, 
which comes from the word to mean an Eberite. Many patriarchs sent their sons to receive spiritual instruction from this academy, and it is mentioned that Ananazadek, king of Jerusalem, was Shem, who went out to meet Abraham with bread and wine. And after Sarah's death, it is written in, the, in Jasher that Abraham would stay with Shem and Eber to learn the ways of the Lord and his instructions. Now you might say, wait, wasn't Shem dead when Abraham was alive? The short answer is simply no. The biblical account would have Shem dying around 2156 2, BC and would have Abraham dying at around 2121 BC. This means that there's a ton of overlap between the lives of Shem and Abraham. Now, during Shem's time, the city of Jerusalem, which was called Salem then, became large enough to be governed by Shem, who, according to this idea, was then given the title Melchizedek. Now, during this time, the city is split into two sections. The lower uh, is the Kidron Valley, which is where it's supposed Shem would have ruled. The upper is what we would know today as the Temple Mount. The lower is called Shalim, or Salem. Peace, right? That means peace. The upper, which is Mount Moriah, and the future Temple Mount, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Altar of the Lord would be, would be called Yira, or Jira, or Provider. My God, that is so good. By Abraham, in Genesis 22, after God provides the ram in the thicket, this is the place where, where Isaac was saved from being sacrificed. The city was eventually united, and these two names were put together in what we now know as the city of Jerusalem. Now, kind of a convoluted way, I don't... Again, this is coming from an extra-biblical account, but it's interesting. Obviously, it's all conjecture, it's all theory, and we can't know for sure who Melchizedek actually was, but what we do know is the writer of Hebrews never says that Melchizedek is Christ. Just as John the Baptist, when asked if he was Elijah, told them that he was not Elijah, he was instead the voice of one crying in the wilderness, but we know that John did come in the power and spirit of Elijah. It's it's interesting, though, real quick. Like, it actually fits, because the thing is, is that the only way that Melchizedek being a theophany really fits is if Salem isn't real. If Salem is Jerusalem... And this it person is. <laughs> is, well, and it is, then this person being the king of Salem means he's actually the king of an actual government in an actual city-state, which means yeah. it can't really be a theophany. That doesn't and make also, sense. Also, what's interesting to me, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, Shem means name. Yeah. The people of the name come through Shem, and Shem name becomes this king and priest foreshadowing the coming of the messiah who would be a king and a priest it is so good like it sounds so good it fits so well my problem is it comes from jasher which yeah you know yeah but i mean at least it doesn't disagree the the big the plus in its corner i guess and i'm not saying i believe this either but the plus is it doesn't violate any scriptural account. I believe that Hebrews 4 perfectly sums all this up. Larry, if you'll read that. Sure. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, priests don't sit on thrones. Kings do. Jesus is a high priest that isn't far from us. He understands the feelings of our failures and pains and struggles. He is a king who reigns over all creation, seated high on his throne. Yet he is not too far that his ear cannot hear and his arm cannot reach. We know that Melchizedek was a type and shadow of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, a priest and king who has no beginning or ending. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And as his children, we are able to talk to our king and priest like he is, which is our father, our savior, our gyra. He is enough. He is our provider. And I want to just paint this picture. A foreshadowing figure of Christ, Melchizedek, a king and priest who has no earthly record of genealogy, gave Abram, the father of faith, bread and wine. 2,200 years later, Christ turned to his disciples in the last few hours of his righteous life and tell them, take this bread, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Take this wine, drink. This is the blood poured out for the new covenant in my blood. That's powerful. No matter how you cut it, it is so good. But let's go on to Genesis 15 as we're going to start wrapping this up. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it him as righteousness. So Abram had done the righteous thing in rejecting the king of Sodom's offer of reward and giving Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. But after all these things, God comes to Abram in a vision and says, Fear not, Abram. And we're looking at this like, well, that's kind of how God does everyone when he talks things up. Fear not. But I feel like God understood what Abram was going through at this moment. Abram was likely afraid of kings of the kings that he had defeated rallying again and coming upon him and taking him. He also probably likely feared revenge in full. So God puts that at ease and he says, I am your shield. Not only will God protect Abraham, but God will be with Abraham. God's presence will journey with him and protect him through any attack, any hardship. Abraham had refused the rewards for success from Sodom. And God says, your reward shall be very great. In the KJV, I believe it says, I, the full phrasing of this is, I am a shield unto thee and thy exceeding great reward. Not only is God his protector, but God is Abraham's reward. And it would far surpass anything 
that we could see on Earth. Because on Earth, there's a rat race of sorts. Everyone's chasing the cheese up to the top. Everyone is seeking power, wealth, influence, and affluence. Yet for holy people, a people of faith, God is their reward. God is enough. But he's also more than enough. He is where the soul is satisfied. He is where our hearts rest and find all our desire. Abraham was one response to all this, though. He complains. And it's the same complaint that he's had since the beginning about not having an heir. Because God had given him wealth, had given him prosperity, but Abraham counted every single bit of it as nothing yet nothing is as if this main matter was not resolved, and that was a son. God had promised a great people from him, and it feels like when I read this, I feel like we can read a little bit of weariness in Abram's voice. You know, he's getting on up in years. I believe the actual phrasing uh, in the Hebrew might say, I, I'm going, I am, I am dying childless. Uh, he feels the pangs of death coming upon him. He feels like, it feels like it's getting close. Now, what we see is a little bit of frustration with God's timing and the providence of God seemingly not agreeing, according to Abram. God had already promised children like the dust of the earth, but now God took Abram out and told him to look up to heaven and number the stars. Not only were his seed to be numerous, but they were to be glorious, spiritually and earthly seed. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The writer of Romans would say that Abraham staggered not at the promises of God, but was strong in faith and fully persuaded. And you see, we go through battles, we go through loss, we go through temptation, we go through highly spiritual times and low spiritual times, and through it all, the ups and downs, we have the assurance that God said what he said, he is also able to perform. The promises of God are yes and amen. They are a sure thing. He is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. So when we see troubles come, when we see battles rise, when we feel anxieties and oppressions fall upon us, remember that in times, in all times, the promises of God shall be fulfilled. Some need healing to believe, some need miracles to believe, some need prophecies to believe, but Jesus knows our hearts, and what a sight was it that God's people should come from a man and woman from whom it seemed no life was coming. From death came life. And how glorious shall it be when we face all manner of temptation and hardship that bring forth greater glory to God, that it works for a work of righteousness and life within us, that our complaints on earth are temporal, but we are not buying for crowns and wealth on earth. We are looking up to the heavens and seeing an innumerable host of witnesses that testify to the glory of God and the fulfillment of his promises. It may not look great, but believe. It may seem like the end of the road, but believe. You may wonder why the healing hasn't come. Remember, where we live, we live to the glory of God. And if we die, we get to rest in the glory with God. Remember when the financial says, there ain't no way this is happening. Your Father in heaven knows those things which you have need of, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Remember, you are one of the children that was promised to Abraham. 
You are one of those many countless stars Abraham was told to number. Remember the promises of Christ that in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, Jesus has overcome the world. So, catch us every Wednesday here at the Jesus No News Podcast. If you want to, check us out at That Pentecostal Podcast every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Both are available. Spotify, Apple. Go download, set it to set it to record it. I don't care what you do. It's just can't miss podcasts. And we'll see you guys.